right, we are back, and uh, it's a great pleasure this morning. Let's give a nice warm radio for my welcome this morning to the incoming police chief here in the city of Arlington. Uh, Brandon Del Pozo is joining us. Chief, thanks for joining us. I guess I can call you that, right, before yeah, sure. you even start? Uh, <laughs> you don't want to jinx it too much, but I'll... Uh, yeah. Sounds right. So thanks, Mark. I'm glad to be here. Well, you've been approved, so everything's, everything's sure. all set. Um, by the way, thank you for uh, not knocking and no warrant here this morning. That's going to be the only time, by the oh, way, that you on. get away with that. <laughs> uh, why did you, uh, what, what interested you about Burlington? Yeah, the first time I came to Burlington was probably the winter of 1998. I just graduated from the, uh, the Mountain Warfare School, the winter phase at Jericho at the Ethan Allen Firing Range. And a friend of mine, Lieutenant Craig Moore, he's now a major in the, uh, in the, in the guard and the infantry. He said, hey, there's this great city right outside of, uh, the base here, it's called Burlington, let's check it out. And I knew about it from, from college. I went to Dartmouth, but I'd never been here. So I, I took a drive, and right away when I was sitting there having lunch in town, I said, this is a really uh, special place. And before I knew it, I was coming up a few times a year at least. I spent my first wedding anniversary here. Um, it's a place where I've come for, for you know vacation, for uh, proximity to the mountains, to skiing, ice climbing, rock climbing. And I've always had sort of my eye on, on making a life up here. Um, I was checking to see if the police uh, chief spot was open on a website. There's actually a police chief uh, classified section. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, on the International Association of Chiefs of Police website. And one day, I, it was it was open. I couldn't believe my eyes, so I applied right away. Tell me about your work in New York. You're a deputy inspector with the New York Police Department. Yeah, sure. I went on my, uh, my terminal leave on Friday, so I've been out for a few days now. Uh, for 18 and a half years, I was a New York City cop. I ended as a deputy inspector, but I started as a... A beat cop uh, in East Flatbush, which is um, you know a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh, I worked in Crown Heights. I worked in the Bronx, uh, where I commanded a precinct. The the upper half is uh, Riverdale, which you know folks say is in the way that some folks say Burlington is so close to Vermont. Riverdale is so close to the Bronx, but the lower half of that precinct, uh, Crown Heights and uh, excuse me, uh, Kingsbridge Heights, Marble Hill, that's uh, more the Bronx you'd think of. Um, I worked there. I commanded a precinct in the West Village. I lived overseas in the Middle East for two years in Jordan. So I had a really varied experience in the NYPD. It was great. I think it prepared me for almost anything. Why, why were you in Jordan? Well, one of the things that the NYPD wanted to do after 9-11 was just get a sense of the global situation. Um, you know, we, we were kind of... We felt very vulnerable after 9-11. You know, you rely on the federal government to keep you informed, to keep you apprised, to protect you from threats outside your borders. And uh, it didn't work that day. And it, I mean, we can all recall how uh, apprehensive we were about what the future might hold. So, yep. you know, New York City is one of those capitals of the world. And, and the, uh, the leadership at the time decided to put police officers uh, and investigators with uh, foreign police forces. So I was with the Jordanian police uh, in Amman, Jordan, based out of there for two years. I, um, my first week, there was a suicide bombing at the two hotels down the street from me and then one a little further afield. So uh, right away, we were sending back information about, uh, when I say we, I mean, it was, it was actually, I was there by myself. Uh, my, my wife came over a little while later. But sending back information about what makes, for example, hotels vulnerable to that type of attack, what it would take in a city for a group of bad guys to pull off an attack like that. Mm. Um, I went to Bombay or Mumbai on two occasions to look at the attacks there, one on the commuter rail later on in 2008, that very famous yep. attack on the hotels there too. Yep. 
it was sort of a, a like a almost like a tactical type of intelligence that we wanted to collect because the feds were interested in these big org charts of of who's in the terror network and where and how could we get them and and what's the international flow of money and and arms and we were kind of interested in figuring out what makes a rail terminus a good target what makes a hotel a good target what makes a, a tourist attraction yeah a good target and nobody really was supplying that information so one of the ways we i think created value for the city in this program was by figuring that out ourselves which and what did you figure out on that question um, I mean, one of the things you, you'd see is honestly one of the one of the uh, um, alarming things is how simple some of these attacks can be. That really, it just takes uh, a motivated offender, a motivated person to to do it. And one of the things I see we're grappling with across the country right now um, are issues like radicalization. And it's not a big city; it's not a New York City issue or a Los Angeles issue. You see a lot of these attacks are happening with. Uh, lone wolves or maybe two or three uh, actors um, who could do this type of work, do this type of planning almost anywhere. Um, you know, the assault weapons are readily available across the country. You can buy them uh, at Dick's Sporting Goods or you can buy some firearms at Walmart, for example. Uh, we found that, you know, people almost always have some sort of fingerprint or footprint before they do this type of work meaning they're either radicalizing a bit exploring more radical online communities or even reaching out uh... to religious leaders for validation before they do it so there are these little um, indicators and if you alienate people and make them afraid to talk to the police you might never find out about them um, but if you gain the community's trust you might have a religious leader or a uh, uh someone online coming to you and saying listen there's somebody poking around who uh looks like they're going the wrong way in fact if if you know i mean years and years ago in the 90s in new york this uh guy was uh, planning on setting off pipe bombs in the train and he was ready to execute his plan and his roommate who hardly spoke english he was a muslim american he uh he came up to two cops and said in very broken English, my roommate's going to set off some bombs. And if he didn't trust the police, uh, he wouldn't have felt comfortable doing that. And in Times Square, it was a Muslim-American food vendor who saw the the car bomb right. a few years ago. Uh, that the was van. Uh, right, yeah. right, right. It was a yeah a truck, right. Uh, and he, he uh, it was a fluke that that thing didn't go off, but he was one of the folks who alerted the police. So I think one of the things we found is, number one, for these small arms type of attacks they're pretty pretty easy to pull off unfortunately um but there's almost always some indicators and people have to trust the police to let us know about them where were you on 9-11 on 9-11 i started my day uh on patrol in sector adam in east flatbush my partner was uh kevin burke um and the um the desk the desk lieutenant said go get us some go get the house the station house some breakfast so we went off and we um went to this bagel store on Flatbush Avenue to get a bunch of egg sandwiches and and as we're driving back up Flatbush towards the precinct we noticed this big plume of smoke we thought it was from an incinerator from a uh, an apartment building but we realized over our police computer you know where in indications that a plane had hit one of the World Trade Centers you know and honestly we thought it was like a silly type of um, we thought it was a pilot like a small plane that had gone astray and we didn't want to go downtown because we knew it would just take up the rest of our day. We were studying to be sergeant. There's 36, 38,000 cops. So we said, well, they're mobilizing folks. Um, 
but we didn't want to go. And that might sound selfish, but we thought it was a, like a Piper Cub or a Cessna. Right. And uh, we just thought, you know, one of the police department strategies is just to throw cops at the problem. But we were looking at these egg sandwiches getting cold, and we said, if we bring these things back cold, we're going we're gonna to get killed. Uh, so we brought the egg sandwiches back warm, and they looked at us and said, throw in your car keys, get in the van, and go downtown to Ground Zero. And by then, on the ride back, we realized it was a jetliner. This was an attack, and we were leaving the parking lot when the second plane hit. What would you do then? Uh, we went through the battery tunnel. Uh, the police department did a great, great job of shutting down traffic. We were able to get into the city right away. And sort of as a fluke, my sergeant at the time was driving. Sergeants normally don't drive in the NYPD. They have a driver. And so I think if uh, a cop was driving, we would have gotten out of the tunnel and, and made a right, just gone right to the right to the World Trade Center, right to the where the action was, where people needed us. But the sergeant was more supervisory-minded. He said, no, 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 we need to go... Uh, to get our assignment, and we're giving out assignments sort of like on the other side of town, underneath the Manhattan Bridge. It was, it was a safe distance away. So we're arguing with him, but he went there, and he was driving. We had no choice, so we, we went there, and um, our assignment was to go back to near Ground Zero and shut down the stock exchange and evacuate the stock exchange. Uh, and, you know, up until the last minute, people were arguing with us. They had to get their trades done. Uh, wow. And... Uh, I remember there was one really patrician-looking guy in uh, 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 blue-eyed, gray suit, very dignified white hair, and, and I'm sort of standing on a folding chair um, because by then the first tower had fallen and everybody had run in every different direction. And uh, I said, hey, I'm Officer Del Pozo from East Flatbush. Uh, we're going to shut down the stock exchange. And some folks were talking in the background, and this man said, everybody shut up. Uh, we're going to listen to what the police officer says and, and follow his orders. And um, and that's what it took, you know, when he said that, the, the floor was quiet and we were able to evacuate the stock exchange. Kind of like E.F. Hutton speaking. Yeah. yeah, no, this guy could have been, he might have been E.F. Hutton. Right. Wow, that's, I mean, that's incredible power, isn't it, to be able to say, I'm shutting down the stock exchange. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things about policing, and I think that's one of the important things about public trust, is that, you know, every day, uh, you know, the, uh, you Oh, you know, the chief, he's got stars on his collar. You know, when it really, really counts, the chief is probably one of the last folks to get to an emergency. The All the important work has been done and the tone has been set a lot of times by the first few responding cops. And no matter whether it's, you know, Burlington or New York, those individual officers have a huge amount of power. And in a crisis, the public is going to do what they uh, what the officers ask them to do. This, But the trust has to be there. When the trust is there, those those street cops can do anything. We're talking with the uh, incoming Burlington Police Chief, Brandon Del Pozo. You can join us on the program this morning at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. Toll-free 877-291-8255. How is this taking this job not in some way either adrenaline or prestige or in some other way not kind of a, a come down? Um, you mean going from New York to Burlington? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that, you know, New York, number one, there's 30, now they'll soon there'll be 36, 37,000 cops again and 15,000 civilians. So it would be sort of like in New York City, like if you're comparing it to Burlington, every single person you see everywhere within the city limits, all of them, including the students being an employee of the police department. Um, so you can be a precinct commander there. You can be, I work for the chief of department. I work for the police commissioner. And you're still one of many. Um, and so, you know, Burlington doesn't have the 
the stock exchange. It doesn't have the Empire State Building. But, you know, I, I remind people, um, citizens here are citizens. They're human beings. They have a right to safety and, and, and to enjoy their life. And when one guy is, is, has one conception of what a good life is and another one has a different one and they're, they're butting heads on Church Street, somebody's got to broker that. Uh, and, and you can't tell a citizen, like, hey, you, you know, policing you is not as exciting or, or adrenaline-filled as policing New York. Uh, you know, people's citizens have equal rights everywhere and equal expectations. And one of the things I, I, I like about Burlington is I think that the standards, it's a really active community, a very civic-minded community, very high standard of, of, uh, for policing, for government. And, uh, and it's, it's going to be great to work at a job where you're held to that high standard. Help me understand from your point of view and and what your take is and how you try to explain to people why there seems to be, at least, in this country, an epidemic of, of white police officers shooting black men. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the question that's convulsing the nation right now, and, and, and rightfully so. I think a lot of things have, uh, uh, you know, come together. When I first saw the first uh, camera on a cell phone years ago on one of mine, I said, and then and then the ability to take uh, moving pictures, I said one day there's going to be a bloodletting in police, and for two reasons. One is is genuine misconduct is going to be uh, a lot harder to uh, hide, and that's great. Uh, police need to be held accountable for misconduct and corruption, so uh, cameras are revolutionizing that. So that's the first part of it is that people are seeing things that might have gone unknown before and demanding. Uh, change in answers and also just sometimes you know policing can take a lot of different forms policing legitimate lawful policing can still be heavy-handed legitimate lawful policing can still involve force or can involve de-escalation and I think that the other thing we're seeing is people saying for the for the first time because of this documentation on film how do we want to be policed? Do we want to be policed in a heavy-handed way? Do we want do we want police that escalate rather than de-escalate? So there's this whole other class of policing that's lawful and just, but that's discretionary. And so the other part of that conversation is what do we expect from our cops? Um, and then the third part of it is I think that over the last several decades, I mean, I'm 40, but I've seen it happen in my lifetime. Um, we're taking equality a lot more seriously. We have an African-American president. We have more African-Americans coming into government positions. Uh, more African Americans in the university, uh, in, in in doing community organizing. So there's more. The voices are more enfranchised, and all of this is coming together uh, at once. I think even to awaken the whole population into a really, really serious conversation about policing. When you say that policing can still be heavy-handed these days, what, what what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if somebody's resisting arrest, for example, and you say, put your hands behind your back, I'm not talking about the actual, we're not even getting to the point where we're having a fight yet. I'm just talking about you're trying to arrest somebody for something even as minor as shoplifting. And you say, listen, you're going, you're going downtown. And the guy says, uh, no, I'm not going. I mean, he's going. There's no, the guy's under arrest. He's, 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 he's reacting emotionally. Um, you know, you, you could... Right away, you're probably justified to grab his wrist and start putting his hand behind his back. And then if he struggles, you can escalate the force a bit and I'll wrestle him to the ground. And, uh, um, you know, if he continues to struggle, maybe your partner will join in. Maybe other cops will come. And now you have a, a wrestling match. Um, or if you have time on your side, um, you can continue talking to the guy and saying, listen, it's not going to end well no matter what. You have to go to jail. I don't want to end up fighting you. Both are lawful courses of action, Right. One of them uh, resorts to force a little more quickly, 
And uh, I think that the nation is probably, I know for a fact, the nation's having a conversation about what it expects from its cops in this regard. What's your, the, one of the few times that I can recall Chief Sherling being criticized when he, during his tenure in, in Burlington was, was dealing with a, with a protest uh, that, that some feel the police response is too heavy-handed. What, what's your feeling about the appropriate way for the police to deal with demonstrations? Yeah, sure. You know, that's something I've given a lot of thought to, and I've seen those videos. And the first thing I'll say is it's much different to be on the ground dealing with it firsthand than for me to sit here on, uh, you know, Henderson Terrace uh, talking to you uh, with no stress, trying to quarterback it. Um, but I'll tell you, one of the things I'll say is that, you know, large-scale protests with civil disobedience uh, doesn't happen that often uh, here in, in Burlington and or in Vermont. And so... Uh, you know, there's a question of, number one, having the experience of knowing what techniques do and don't work and, and uh, um, how to handle civil, civil disobedience well. I mean, it's something that, that we dealt with uh, with varying results all the time in New York City. Um, you know, another thing is, too, the posture that, that cops have. Uh, sometimes it's hard to... So, first of all, if you're asking me, I, I guess you asked how I'd handle it. Um, number one, citizens don't have to get permission from the police to protest. They never do. They never have to tell us in advance. They never have to uh, give us warning. They never have to negotiate. But if that's their stance, if they're not going to give us any advance notice, they have to recognize that there are restrictions on protests. They can't. That's not a free for all. If you're going to stay on the sidewalk, you're not going to obstruct, uh, you know, vehicles. You're not going to push people off into the roadway with your march. You can march anywhere uh, you want without telling the police what you're doing at all. Um, once it starts to get real late at night. Or once you start during the day blocking traffic, or once you want to go and do some civil disobedience, now now uh, you know the rights of other citizens get involved too. And uh, what I just hope happens, what I what I what I'm entreating the folks who are listening, who are thinking of uh, demonstrating and protesting, is by all means, it's your right. It's the job of the police to help you protest, to facilitate that, to make that happen for you, to do it in a way that's safe and that helps broker your very important First Amendment rights with some of the rights of other citizens on the street, too. 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. You can also reach us toll-free at 877-291-8255. We're going to take a call here. Uh, Ziggy, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Hello? Hello? Hey, how are you? Hello? Ziggy? Yes, hello. Hey, yeah, no, this is Chief Del Pozo. How are you? Excellent. Uh, was, was, no, if, if I understand correctly, you just uh, came here from, the, from the New York? New York yeah, City? that's correct, New York City. Okay, I'd, what is, my question is, two little questions. The, the uh, de Blasio effect on the police force and the effect of politically speaking, of how the force feels the White House has been dealing all these incidents that have been happen happening. Hello? It, yeah, so I guess your first question was about the effect that the mayors had on the police, and your second question was about the, the White House? The, the White House, on how they've been handling it and how they feel. I mean, are they for the cops? Do they feel that the establishment is going against the police? That's yeah, I mean, I think right now politicians are trying to are trying to balance a bunch of things. They're trying to balance, uh, and this goes for New York and for Washington. They're trying to balance citizens' genuine concern about how the police are are uh, 
are treating other citizens. Um, they're trying to balance the shootings that are coming on video and some of the misconduct and some of the lawful police work that's just unpleasant to watch. And they're also trying to balance the need to deliver public safety. And I think that de Blasio, uh, the mayor of New York, is really... I mean, he's been hit uh, hard with that challenge. You know, he, he ran for mayor on an agenda to reform the police department. He ran for mayor on an agenda to, to um, um, make changes in the NYPD. And you could see, uh, you know, Eric Garner was a citizen in Staten Island who, uh, who died during a police encounter. And so you could see de Blasio kind of oscillating back and forth between knowing that he has to keep crime down uh, and uh, and knowing that he promised uh, a constituency that he would reign in the police. So um, I guess what you saw in New York was for a while, I mean, I, this is in the news. I'm not saying it for the first time. Cops were a bit resentful at the way they felt the mayor was treating them. Um, they felt that he didn't have their back when they had to make some difficult decisions. He felt that um, the guidance they were giving during early protests resulted in, for example, people throwing... Uh, um, garbage cans at the police, people chanting, and I, I know this for a fact, chanting, we want dead cops. Um, and after two cops were murdered, I think there was a reckoning in, in City Hall in New York, and he realized that he couldn't run a successful city without also having the police on board. And I think the last several months have been him trying to, uh, to, to do both, to make peace with the cops, which he seems to be succeeding somewhat, and... Uh, and also, uh, you know, keep his promise to the citizens. And to be honest, the the, the national climate, um, I don't think New York City cops, I mean, in the locker room and in the cafeteria, they'll talk a lot about uh, the White House, but it really, I don't think it affects them uh, that much. I think they see that as pretty far off. I think they, uh, um, what they do feel, though, is that, you know, pretty much police work from now on is going to be on film. I think the one thing to take away, Ziggy, is that police work is going to be uh, a spectator sport from now on, and cops know that, and it will affect the way they act. Excellent. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks. Is that a good thing? Um, so I, I say this. On balance, yes, it's, it's good. Uh, cops should be wearing body cameras to film their conduct. In Burlington, all the officers wear body cameras. Uh, likewise, people have a right to film the police, and they should. Um, all I ask is uh, don't edit it. You're not trying to get an Oscar here. You're not trying to get an Oscar for the film or for editing or for sound. You don't have to narrate it. You don't have to, uh, hey, we're going to get you. We got you on film. Don't worry. You know, if you want to be a, uh, a responsible citizen, in my opinion, anyway, just film it. Film it. But don't, don't give, the, uh, give the whole incident when you put it up. And, uh, and don't antagonize the cop by waving the camera two inches from his face. That's not respectful. Um, but filming things does change the way people act sort of in, a, in a, a stiffer way. I'm sitting here across from Mark. If I didn't have this... This is not film, this is audio, but the point remains the same. If Mark and I were just sitting at his dining room table having a cup of coffee, we'd have a totally different tenor to this conversation than if I knew it was uh, getting memorialized forever. So you're going to get cops being very officious. You're going to get them being very formal, maybe a little less human sometimes when they're on camera. So there is a trade-off for filming, but I think net-net, it's a good thing. 244-1777 is our local number, toll-free 877-291-8255. We'll take a short break, come back, continue our discussion with the incoming police chief in Burlington, Brandon Del Pozo. We'll be back right after these important announcements. The annual Stow Antique Car Show is not complete without the WDEV Street Dance with John Noyes and Joel Nashman, Saturday night, August 8th from 7 to 10 on Main Street. Be ready to dance and enjoy the beautiful antique vehicles lining the street. WDEV's Joel Nashman will be playing great car tunes before the dance. And then John Noyes will play the best dance music from the 50s through today. 
this Saturday night at the WDEV Street Dance on Main Street during the Stowe Antique and Classic Car Show. Made possible by Stowe Beverage and State Liquor Store in the Gale Farm Center. Hi folks, this is Jerry Booth. Vermonters drink Booth Brothers milk every day. They know they can trust Booth Brothers for great tasting milk with no artificial growth hormones. It's local, it's fresh, it's healthy. And it's produced right here in central Vermont. In a world that's constantly changing, it's good to know where your milk comes from. 27 local farms with the same goal. Only the freshest, the finest Booth Brothers milk. So the next time you're in the dairy aisle, reach for Booth Brothers. We are back continuing our discussion this morning. We've been talking with the uh, Burlington Police Chief, Brandon Del Pozo. Uh, let's talk on um, drugs. Uh, so biggest issue facing Burlington is what? Yeah, I mean, you got that right. I think the biggest uh, police issue, the biggest direct serious issue facing Burlington has got to be opiates right now. Um, so much so, in fact, later today, uh, there's an attorney from the New York City uh, Deputy Commissioner of Operations Office. That's a big. That's one of our crime strategies. Our big crime fight. Our big picture crime fighting office is the Commissioner of Operations. Uh, he's uh, the Commissioner himself is Deputy Commissioner Dermot Shea. He was a precinct commander in the Bronx. He actually commanded the 5-0, which I commanded as well. And then he went on to command the 4-4. Went into the Detective Bureau. So he's sending an envoy to meet with the U.S. Attorney today. And then he'll be meeting with me later today uh, to talk about the nexus for guns and drugs between New York City and Burlington. Um, it's a pipeline. There's no question about it. The, uh, the drugs come up north. The folks stay here. They do their business. And then they buy some guns. And they take the guns back down to New York. Um, we've seen the amount of overdose calls going up, the amount of fatal overdoses going up. And if you just talk to folks, I've talked to city councilors in Burlington. I've talked to everyday citizens. And... Uh, there's the perception, too, just looking around on the street, be it needles, be it people who uh, look like they're struggling with addiction. It's a it's a problem. Okay. So what are you going to what's going to be your approach here? Gosh, I mean, it's hard. Listen, one of the first things I have to say is, uh, um, as you know, I'm starting September 1st. So uh, if I laid out a, uh, a drug strategy for you and a crime strategy for you right now, uh, I'd be selling you snake oil. I mean, I really need to see what's going on here first before I do that. But. Um, I'll tell you, number one, the addicts, folks who are addicted to opiates, uh, they, um, I mean, they have a medical problem. And they do commit crimes to finance that problem, but first and foremost, it's a medical problem. So we're not going to shy away from folks, you know, committing burglaries or breaking into cars, you know, to uh, uh, get money for drugs. Those, those people will be arrested, and we'll deal with the uh, uh, state's attorney to figure out the best criminal course for them. But beyond that... Um, it takes a village to solve that problem. They need to get their treatment. They need to have an alternative to opiates because uh, they're going down a road that's eventually going to kill them. Um, as far as dealing goes, and, and I say this, you know, these are folks who are making their living um, financing someone else's destruction. And that's, that's wrong uh, no matter how you cut it. You can't have a desperate, down on their heels, end of the line person coming to you with their last 10 bucks that they probably just committed a crime to get and you just snatch it out of the hand and give them a drug to kill themselves with can't have that um you know and that's part of collaborating with new york city to really build good federal cases on the people that are bringing these uh drugs up to uh up to vermont and the last thing is uh you know a small step but i know we're working on it now in burlington which is narcan the opiate uh antidote um, every single New York City cop, all 30 some odd thousand of them, especially all the ones on patrol, they all have Narcan. Uh, wow. 
It's an effective uh, antidote. We've already saved lives with it. Uh, there's no, no, I'm not a doctor. I might get a call from UVM Medical Center, but there's no uh, penalty, so to speak, for mis, mis, uh, misdiagnosing it. Mm-hmm. Even if the person isn't dying of an opiate overdose and you give it to them, there's no side effects. So it seems like a win-win. And that's just a little way to show that uh, cops are first responders. And if they get there first, hopefully we'll have Narcan here as well to uh, save a life. Can, can, is there a law enforcement solution that you can shut down the supply? I mean, listen, what you're asking me is, can I win the war on drugs? And uh, I didn't ask that. <laughs> I just asked if there's a way that law enforcement can shut down the supply. No, I, I think that, that, that uh, Vermont is particularly vulnerable right now because it's a wide open market. Um, the, the drugs here sell for anywhere from two to three times what they sell for down in the metro area in New York City, for example. I'm talking about New York City because that's you know where I'm from, but it's also the main main pipeline in. Um, so there's a huge, huge incentive to bring that supply up here. Uh, can we shut it down? I mean, no, you, you can't. You know, we have a federal government agency that's that's solely dedicated to this with a huge budget, and they haven't been able to do it. But we do have to impose a penalty for doing it. We need to make people think twice before I get on the bus or get in a car and come to New York. I'm sorry, come to, to come to Vermont. Um, will there be a penalty for uh, for me getting caught? And we want there to be a real serious one. Two four four seventeen seventy seven is our local number. Toll free eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. Let's go to Warren George. How are you this morning? Well, I'm good. How are you guys doing? All right. Hey, hi, Warren. Hey, I'd just like to uh, uh, welcome the police chief up to Vermont. I want to say that Thanks. in the last few years, we've noticed uh, you know, a kind of a deterioration up there in Burlington as to the uh, number of street people and problems going on even on church street uh noticed that the smoking ban seemed to help help things out a little bit but uh where we live about an hour out of burlington we don't have a police force and you know crime is up break-ins are up mid in the middle of the day people are having uh things taken out of their house uh, by people looking to keep their um drug habit going and you know we're hopeful that something can be done to uh um, kind of bring us back to the old days a little bit in terms of way crime used to be here in Vermont. Um, one comment I would like to make, everyone talks about the drug pipeline and, you know, the make a bus and people coming up bringing drugs and guns and taking guns back. I do think that there's not enough being said about the root cause. And as we all know, the root cause is prescription medication, prescription mm-hmm. opiates that get people hooked. And, right. um, I really think that uh, a smart angle would be to uh, track the prescriptions and track the doctors and who, who's given out the right number of prescriptions, the right number of these pills. You know, we hear the Oxycontin is $50 a pill over up here in, in New England, and uh, you've got doctors dispensing hundreds of these patients on a monthly basis for years. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, Warren said something he made a lot of astute observations. One, he talked about crime going up, and then I was going to say that's related to the drug problem, and, and I think he, he said that for me. So it's good to hear somebody with some experience in the area saying the same thing. Um, and the other thing, sure, the, these are all, you know, it's like a network of, rela- a drug 
using community as a network of relationships. It's if you look at the last two fatal overdoses, they were two brothers. I mean, if you're uh, using heroin uh, to the point where you might overdose, your brother's probably in danger too, and your friends are probably in danger. And even in the village, I I, I live north of the city uh, before I moved. Uh, Cold Spring, New York, is where I live, mm-hmm. which is a little village on the Hudson. We had a few overdoses, and it's a network of friends um, that were overdosing. Network of of high school kids. Meaning, uh, you know, related by uh, friendship, by blood. Um, and so one of the interesting ways to, to get ahead of it is to treat it as an epidemic, use epidemiology. Um, so it starts where it, it starts with, you know, and Warren said it, we have these prescription opiates. Where are they going? Who's using them? Who's related to the people who's using them? Um, if, you, if you come into contact with somebody who's a, uh, let's say you arrest somebody who's an opiate addict. Um, you probably want to know who that person hangs out with and who they're related to because you're going to find other opiate addicts there too. And then you got to get ahead of that and go find those folks and see if they need treatment. But that requires resources. I mean, that's a bit of police work, but it also requires resources from the medical community, from the social services community. Um, but that's right. The long-term solution is to kind of break those, you know, keep the social network in place, but break the, um, the opiate link in it. Let's go uh, to South Burlington. Good morning, Alice. How are you today? Good morning, Mark. <clears throat> Good morning, Chief. Um, hey, Alice, how are you? Hi. I want to um, echo the sentiments of the previous caller. Um, I live in South Burlington, but I was born and raised in Burlington. Um, in fact, my father chaired the Burlington Police Commission for years um, in the late 70s and early 80s. I really do want to welcome you. Um, Thanks. I was really dismayed at the hearing that you had to endure with uh, at City Hall with a lot of people that we're acting up, and in, in my view, um, we're completely not indicative of the welcome and the reception that you're going to get in the city of Burlington. I personally um, look forward to meeting you. I'm thrilled that you're coming up here and you chose our city. And I think that your wealth of information in dealing with the drug issues and other issues that um, are confronting Burlington is, is fantastic. I mean, Burlington is not the city that I grew up in in the 60s and 70s, and your type of, of knowledge, I think, is going to be invaluable. So I, I know your wife was upset with, and concerned about the hearing, and I really can't blame her. You're packing up, what, I think a couple of boys and moving yeah, over right, to the city. Boys, and yeah. I just want to convey that you will be welcomed here. I hope the city has, the mayor has a nice um, reception for you because I'd love to come meet you and your wife and yeah, your kids. Yeah, no, and, listen, uh, Look forward you to definitely having you have here. a chance I'm, to come I'm meet grateful us. that you chose Burlington. No, thanks. And I'm, I'm very grateful to. I'm, listen, I'm grateful Burlington chose me. I mean, it was a, a bunch of folks that applied for this spot, and uh, um, it's sort of, in, in some respects, a dream come true that, that I got it. And you know, you know, my wife being uh, upset at the hearing is sort of. I, I used this analogy from so long ago, but there was this boxer in a ring. Uh, and he was getting beat by his opponent, and the boxer's mom came in and started beating the opponent with a shoe. Um, it's just this natural instinct that the people who love you have to uh, not want to see it, you know, uh, take anything on the chin. But those folks that came to the hearing, I mean, they, you know, they didn't know me. They, none of them had ever seen me, uh, um, you know, on a personal level. But that having been said, they were concerned about some of the things that they saw in New York and some of the things about policing in general. And, you know, maybe the, the venue wasn't the most constructive where they all speak for two minutes um, 
and I can't respond in turn. But I did have a chance to respond to them that night, and they were they were exercising their rights. I mean, I can't I can't begrudge anybody for coming to a hearing and exercising their rights. And uh, I think the city learned something important too, which is you know, department heads are chosen by a pretty uh, thorough process. But policing is at a place in America right now where people even want to go the extra mile in choosing yeah. their chief. So, I mean, it's 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 great to hear you welcoming me because I did get a lot of support like that offline, not not at the hearing per se, but uh, dozens of people saying, "Come to listen, don't lose hope. Burlington is not just a bunch of people yelling at you for two minutes apiece. It's a great town." Uh, so, I, thanks, and I, I totally uh, believe it, you. It's true, and I know a lot of us completely trust the mayor and the process that you went through and Chief Sherling and the city council. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a home run for you to get in and I'm just uh, really look forward to welcoming you. So yeah, thank you. No, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. I also appreciate your call. One of the things that came up at this hearing that I want to ask you about is this whole question about what your, your feelings are about profiling. Um, there was this uh, academic journal, this piece that you wrote back in 2001, where at one point you said that police departments and politicians must also recognize our ethical applications of racial profiling, which if neglected would do more than merely encumber police officers, the neglect would uh, wreak, unnecessary, wreak unnecessary harm on all sectors of the citizenry. I, I guess my question for you, aren't there times where profiling does make sense and you talked about the van and in, in, in new york city and and i mean are there times where profiling makes sense i mean so first you know it's funny i listen to i look at what i wrote and i'm, I'm still i'll probably be in, in grad school for the rest of my life but i look at this go ahead go i look ahead. at the stuff that i wrote uh 16 years ago and uh for the first thing to do is cringe at my pro style, but also cringe at, at as you know as a young philosophy grad student trying to be a little too clever um you know, first of all, understanding profiling, insurance companies build a profile of people to charge them rates, auto auto insurance does, life insurance. Um, so the thing that we're concerned about is not, you know, the use of skin tone or race as a description in a criminal incident. And I bring up, I've said it a million times, the Rotary Mart uh, robbery that happened about a month ago. Male white does a gunpoint robbery. The Rotary Mart flees in a beige car. When the cops in the next 10 minutes are looking for uh, that person, um, they, they need to take into account that they're looking for a white male. If they, if they peer into a car and they see a, a, an Asian-American or, or African-American, uh, they're probably wasting their time. They need to uh, go look for, the, for, the, for a better match. Um, if that man does a few robberies, he gets away with it. And now there's a pattern out there. The pattern is uh, you know, a white male in a beige sedan doing uh, um, gunpoint robberies of, of convenience stores. And so when a, uh, there's a beige car in a parking lot and the, and the driver's peering into the store at 10 at night, um, the officer might want to ask himself, is it a white male behind the wheel? Is it a female? Is it a black guy? Should I keep driving or watch? That's fine. When it becomes wrong is when you use that general description to just heap suspicion on people. Oh, uh, listen, I'm on the other side of town. There's a black guy driving. I'm going to pull him over and see if he's got something in his car. Or there's a white guy. And, and if someone says, why'd you do that? And we go, oh, I'm looking for the Rotary Mart robber. You know, you can't just take general patterns and use them to heap suspicion. That's racial profiling, saying I'm going to use these general feelings I have about criminals to just stop citizens and, and sort of use that as a bad excuse. I mean, that, that happens in America. That's, it's, it's wrong. Uh, and just imposing an unfair cost of law enforcement on people based on their races is is wrong too. It shouldn't be that, um, you know, you see a headlight out on a, a 
car driven by an African-American and you see a headlight out on a car driven by a Caucasian person and you pull over the African-American and give him the headlight summons just to see if he might have drugs in his car. That's that man doesn't deserve that treatment. That's wrong, too. I can't say that enough. It has to be. Law enforcement has to impose fair costs on citizens, not not unfair costs. So I go back to the phone. Uh, Genevieve, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Can you hear me? Yep, got to be sort of quick here, but thank you for calling. Okay, thank you. Thank you uh, first of all, welcome, uh, Chief Sopozo. Thank you. Um, I really appreciated a couple of comments that I heard in the show earlier, and so I'll repeat the comments that you had made. Uh, one was the observation that if you alienate people and make them afraid to talk to the police, um, that's contrary to your whole goal here. Sure. You need to gain their trust. Um, and the second thing that you said that I appreciate is that you uh, can see and appreciate the really high standard for policing and governance that we have in Burlington and Vermont, generally, with our town meeting tradition. Um, so given those two uh, agreements that we have on that, I'd like to ask um, if you uh, made an effort to meet community groups before the vote, uh, July 13th city council meeting, and if not, why not? And if you did make the effort, why didn't it happen? To meet community groups, so that, I mean, there's two there's two pieces to that. First is, um, you know, when I was going through this election process, I met with what I thought, and I'm I'm saying it jokingly, but obviously, it felt like I met everybody in Burlington. Um, I met mm -hmm. with folks from the diversity committee, from the library, from uh, the housing authority, from the city council, from all sorts of alternative justice uh, uh, services. Um, so there was a process that the mayor and his staff put in place to really expose all the candidates to a wide, wide range of folks so they could ring in uh, and give their opinions. Um, and then when people expressed concerns, I actually spent, I, I used to joke that I'm going to get ear cancer one day because I must have spent hours and hours, countless hours on the phones with Burlington citizens, even from, <laughs> from New York yeah, I while I was working. Yeah, I you on that one. Um, right. I, I okay. Was hold, 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 Genevieve, you, hold on. Genevieve, hold on. Genevieve, hold on. Let, Genevieve, hold on. let me have him finish. Hold on. A lot of people. Okay. Why not hold, a group? Wait. Genevieve, let me have him finish. Hold on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No. That's that's. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things I have to stress is that as a as a person who wasn't even confirmed, who wasn't the the chief, um, you know, there's a limit to the the, the legitimate outreach you can do. Uh, you know, you have to be guided by the process that's in place. And I think that the city's looking at that process and thinking maybe, you know, about a way to do it more inclusively next time. But, um, you know, once it's uh, once I'm sworn in on September 1st, it's off to the races. I mean, that's that's it's my job to do the type of outreach you're talking about. So you regain the public trust by meeting with uh, community groups and hearing in a less formal, less intimidating setting. Yeah, sure. No, that's it. Uh, right. No, I get it. So right. On their right. on their turf. Mm -hmm. With them, it's, yeah, that's right. It's really an honor that <clears throat> I think should be appreciated by both the council, the mayor, and yourself, as well as the rest of citizens, that 140 people did show up um, to share what their concerns were. Because in the past, we have had um, typically every uh, candidate for the chief of police uh, has, first of all, already been known to the community because they've usually come uh, from Vermont or certainly sure. from Burlington. And usually, or if not always in the past, um, there have been a few weeks during which candidates had open forums, public forums, um, meetings with specific groups, especially in the old North End here. 
Um, so the people okay. could let me let me really, let me interrupt and I get interrupted. Uh, thank, Genevieve, thank, thank you for your call, Genevieve. Um, we're we're really pretty much out of time. Is there anything quickly you want to add to what uh, she said? No, I mean I think she's exactly right. I love the fact that there are these open meeting laws, the uh, the data transparency, the all of that, and I look forward to meeting with these citizens one on one. Thanks for coming over here. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you here, too. That's going to wrap things up for today. Uh, That's the New Burlington Police Chief, uh, Brandon Del Pozo, uh, back in the studio coming up on the program tomorrow. Thanks for joining us today. Have a great day, and do come back and join us same time, same place tomorrow, right here on FM 96.1 WDEV Warren, broadcasting from the top of Sugarbush, FM 96.5 in Barry and Montpelier, and AM 550 WDEV Waterbury, Montpelier. News is coming your way next.